Ray. Will. Hey. Can you hear me? <laughs> I can, yes. It's um, it, good old anchor. It's sometimes games, so uh, I apologize for that. <laughs> That's no problem. Third time's a charm, as you said. It absolutely yes. It's um, it's good old technology and, and connectivity. I think certainly in Poland this time of the afternoon, there's a lot of people, particularly school kids, etc., hitting the internet. So uh, that probably might explain it. <laughs> How are you? Good. It's a nice fall day here in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. So the trees are starting to turn. This is the best, probably the best time of year to be in Indiana. It's um, it's certainly here in Poland. The fall is. Um, I live on the Baltic coast, or we live on the Baltic coast, and certainly after the summer season's over and the, the sort of town is returned to civilization again, I better be careful what I say about the, <laughs> the tourists. But it's a, it is a lovely time as well. Yeah, fall is always a great time of year. I think. Yeah, good. Well, we're very warm welcome to Will Talk Military and um, to this. Congratulations on your book about Thank Richard Gaskis. Um, amazing. Anyone who, who puts pen to paper or uh, or fingers to keyboard, it's it's always an amazing achievement anyway. But I think this is such a, an amazing story because I I mean just just reading through, just diving straight into the the subject matter of, of Richard's career in in reporting, just. As we discussed on email, just the Second World War alone, and he, I can't think of anyone who's covered that much ground across the entire war. It's, it is truly remarkable. It is. It's what really attracted me to his story from the first. And if he had frequent flyer miles, imagine how many he would have from just his wartime service. Uh, it's amazing. That's one of the things that attracted to me to his story, the fact that he not only uh, reported from one theater, but from from both, which I found uh, unusual. It's, I mean, it's unusual by by military standards in terms of serving personnel, but from a for a reporter, as you say, just to be able to traverse the world at that stage, um, it's an achievement. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I could have uh, withstood all that travel, uh, particularly on the uh, aircraft of the time period which were uh, by no means comfortable to travel in. All, all that safe compared to these days. True. Um, yes. you, you risked your life every time you took off or if you were shipping out with the Navy because uh, there were correspondents on board warships who were, were killed in action. You know, they were uh, facing the same kind of dangers that the uh, seamen were. Absolutely. And just, again, just to be traveling around in a world war, it's it's not just the mechanical failure, it's all right. the, the fighting side of things. Um, but I, it, it is remarkable because um, just the sheer wear and tear on the man must have been extraordinary. I mean, he, he was wounded in Italy, but just the, the emotional wear and tear, he, he must have been made of steel, this man. Not only uh, were there uh, mental difficulties and, you know, dealing with the rigors of combat, but he had another thing to worry about that most other correspondents didn't. And that was the fact that he was dealing with a chronic illness, and that's uh, diabetes, which yes. he was diagnosed with uh, right 
right before he was shipped out uh, as a war correspondent for the International News Service. So he had to be, of course, very careful with his diet because he wasn't taking shots of insulin at the time. Later, after World War II, he did switch to, to insulin, but he tried to control his uh, symptoms by controlling his diet, which was difficult, particularly when it came to serving on board uh, you know, ships uh, from the Navy and also you know, while he was serving in the field. Uh, with the troops on Guadalcanal and in Sicily and Italy and in Europe as well. Yes, I mean, the, 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 the rations would not be conducive to management of, uh, of diabetes too well. He must have had to be pretty careful in what he ate and, and, and when he ate, which, again, is not easy in a, in a war zone. No, it isn't. And uh, one of the things he did, you know, he tried to keep this a secret from everyone, his employers and other correspondents as well. But they must have been at least a little suspicious, uh, particularly when he first shipped out on uh, the cruise of Northampton for the Doolittle raid, because he took along with him a case, about 100 tins of canned sardines. And I know that some of the other correspondents were, you know, commented on his strange diet, but I'm not sure if they knew exactly what was going on, but they must have suspected something wasn't quite right. It's, um, and it, he must have, been under a lot of stress because of that alone because you know the rigors of being in war fighting environments is huge demands on energy um huge demands and stress on the body so he's again an extraordinary achievement to manage that i guess organically true and you know he's withstanding you know not all the rigors of combat you know he's not um you know fighting the enemy but he's withstanding shelling uh, offshore from uh, Japanese ships on, on Guadalcanal. Uh, so he has to, you know, be on the edge and wary of uh, where shell might land. He has to be aware of where the uh, protection is, where dugouts are, are located, where he can take cover. And so it's a strain mentally and uh, physically on a guy who was maybe not built for, you know, he's very tall. He's well over six feet, five inches in height. And so he makes a, a great target uh, when yeah. he's out <laughs> and collecting his information uh, to uh, send his dispatches back to the United States. And he was very much somebody who, who didn't want to phone it in. I mean, he, it seems that if, if, he, if he wrote about something, it's because he'd seen it. This was no, there was, there was no fiction here at all. That's what really drew me to his story as well. I consider him, uh, this is kind of my... Uh, trilogy of war correspondents. I've written before about uh, Ernie Pyle, yeah. uh, of course, well-known, uh, probably the best-known correspondent of World War II. And my second book was on Robert Sherrod, who was a correspondent for Time and Life magazine and was well-known for following uh, the Marine Corps during World War II in the Pacific. And um, today is the birthday of the Marine Corps, so happy birthday to the U.S. Marines out there. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Richard uh, Tregascus uh, followed uh, the Marines into action on Guadalcanal. One of the things that all these three reporters share was this characteristic of they didn't want to be known as what uh, Sherrod called communique commandos, that is, reporters who stayed behind uh, well behind the lines at headquarters and just dependent upon the canned handouts from the uh, PROs, the public relations officers, uh, to uh, send back to the United States. They had to be up 
with the troops at the front line and seeing with their own eyes uh, what was going on. And so you didn't get the big picture from Pyle's dispatches or uh, Trigaskis's uh, dispatches, but you got the details from what was going on uh, with the fighting men at the front. You, know, you got the little personal details of what it was like being in action and uh, the rigors of combat and uh, all the terrors uh, involved in that kind of action. And I guess this was a, a sort of new war reporting because previous war reporting on the whole had been very much big picture and very much mm -hmm. led by command rather than actual experience from what I can that, That's right. And that's something I think John Steinbeck uh, noted when he wrote a, he wrote a, uh, an, cover story for time magazine about ernie Pyle, and he said you know in world war ii and he covered the war uh, as well that there were two wars and one really didn't have much to do with the other you know there was the war of the movements of divisions and armies concerning uh, great generals like dwight eisenhower and then there was the more personal war of you know the dirty ragged men who went through as dirty as business as the world has ever seen. And that that's the kind of war that Ernie covered and uh, Trigaskis also covered in, in his war reporting. And that's what they were interested in, in doing, and not only with you know uh, the infantry, uh, but the Air Force, uh, Naval Forces uh, as well, telling the story of you know what it was like to be under fire uh, on a ship or what it was like to be on a bombing mission uh, against a small Japanese outpost or a major Japanese city, as uh, Trigaskis did later in the war when he was on uh, some missions with the B-29 bomber over Japan. And that's the kind of stories that interested him, Pyle, and Sherrod, and all, I think, the, the great correspondence of the war. Do you, do you think people like Trigaskis really almost set the template for what became the sort of standard of war reporting, which again shifted from that kind of almost 19th century, this is what the generals are saying, this is how much land we've taken, through to kind of the Vietnam era, which was very much about personal experience and 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 sort of first-hand accounts. He, I guess he kind of set the mold in a way. Pyle in particular, and I think, uh, you know, others uh, like uh, uh, Tregascus, you know, did set that kind of tone that followed on after the end of the war and it was expected of reporters who went overseas to Korea, for example, people like uh, Marguerite Higgins and Homer Biggert and uh, the, the better known reporters from the Korean War. The, as A.J. Liebling, who was a, also a World War II correspondent noted, they were kind of stuck in that, trying to get the details that Pyle got in his reporting. You know, they wanted the, the personal stories. They wanted to know, you know, I mean, if you were a correspondent in World War II or later on in Korea, you wouldn't send a dispatch back to your home office without including the hometowns of each of the people that you talked to. And that's something uh, I think Pyle really pioneered in his uh, daily columns and that uh, others followed in, in, in their wake and that they kind of set the tone for what was expected of, of reporters in the uh, conflicts to come following World War II. And it kind of follows today with, you know, embedded reporters, uh, those who follow a particular unit in, into battle. Uh, of course, they're 
they can't get their dispatches out um, uh, in the in the manner that maybe they did in World War II. There's more, a lot more, I think, censorship uh, on them because of the instantaneous communication we have today. Uh, but that uh, trying to be like Pyle and uh, Tregascus and getting that personal detail is something that I think is ingrained in any reporter who, who goes into uh, a wartime uh, area. And it's, it's a huge skill because very often in those situations, there is a kind of, if you're surplus to requirements, there's a very selfish atmosphere or can be where anyone who isn't actually involved in the military aspect of things can, can just get in the way. And someone like Dragasics, I imagine, was, was very good at kind of being present, but not actually being in the way, which, again, and that allowed him to, I guess, relate to the men, to, to observe without being a, a, an obstruction, and, and all of those things which can really, I imagine, annoy a lot of military people about journalists and media, media people. In looking at how the troops responded to uh, Trigascus during the war, I think they were all impressed by his willingness to share the dangers with them. And that was the overriding attitude that I found. Because as one soldier said to him, you know, it beats the hell out of me. You know, you don't have to be here. Uh, why, why, why are you here? And he said, well, we, of course we have to, you know, Trigascus, of course we have to be here. You know, we got to get those, uh, you know, see what's going on with, with our own eyes. And that's what he did. But I was always impressed by his, his willingness to go into action and risking his life, sometimes, you know, uh, being kind of foolhardy in doing so, you know, going on raids with uh, uh, Red Mike Edson's uh, Raider uh, commandos uh, on Guadalcanal um, when it was you know uncertain if they would ever even come back uh, alive from the mission and how many times during his his career uh, before uh, he finally you know got hit uh, by a german shell in while reporting from the uh, action in in italy how many times he came so close to uh, being killed because yeah. like he, he'd get off a ship after uh, going on a mission, and that night they would be bombed by, by the Japanese and sunk, or how close they came during the uh, Doolittle Raid to being discovered by the Japanese and having the entire Japanese fleet after them, but escaping somehow, miraculously it seemed. But of course, he, you know, his number did come up uh, in Italy, and he was uh, very severely wounded uh, by that German shell. It's in some ways, although the Italian campaign and, and Guadalcanal and completely different parts of the world and completely different Axis forces, they, they sort of have a similarity in that they were, at the time, I think they were, people didn't really understand just A, how desperate the fighting was both in Italy and Guadalcanal, mm -hmm. and just what was at stake. I think it became very much about... D-Day, retrospectively, D-Day, the, the sort of big push through France, Belgium and Germany, and that all seemed fairly easy to understand in, in historical terms. But looking at what um, Tchaikovsky wrote about Guadalcanal and then later the Italian campaign, it's important historical record too, because I, I think 
it's only in the last 10 years that I'm aware of that people have really looked at the Guadalcanal and the island hopping campaign and seen just how desperate it was and, and just the, the sheer numbers of losses from the US Marine Corps were, were difficult to fathom in this this age. And, and similarly in Italy, I, I, I never really understood until I read Italy's Sorrow by mm. James Holland, I think. And the Italian campaign, which was billed as almost a kind of sideshow, was a, as, as Trigaskis points out, you know, this was, this was really terrible hand-to-hand rough fighting. And he does everyone a service by both both in the uh, Asian theatre and in the European theatre, sort of highlighting those campaigns, I think. He does. He does a great job of that in detailing the rugged conditions uh, in both Italy with, with the mountainous terrain there and with the uh, jungles on Guadalcanal, showing readers back home uh, just what uh, these men were up against uh, when they were fighting in these conditions. And I think it's hard for the people today because, you know, we know what happened. We know the outcome. You know, the, the Allies beat the Nazis. They beat the Jap- Japanese. But at the time, these were, you know, operations run on, uh, you never know what was going to happen. It could very well have failed. Um, you know, the American fleet was dealt a very severe blow by the Japanese Navy uh, and when after the Marines landed on Guadalcanal and it seemed like they were trapped there. It could have been another situation like American forces uh, had at the Philippines on Corregidor, you know, where they were surrounded and they kept waiting and waiting and expecting and hoping for a a relief expedition from the United States that that never came. And uh, it could have been that way on on Guadalcanal as well. It was a very near run thing. And when uh, Tregascus landed uh, in Italy, you know, he came upon these burned out German tanks and going up to a report from General Clark's headquarters and saw just how close uh, the Allied forces have come to being overrun by the Germans in, in this uh, counterattack in Italy. And the desperate hand to hand struggle in the mountainside uh, when he right before he was wounded on Mount Corno in Italy, reporting on Darby's Rangers pitch battles with uh, Germans occupying another hill, uh, an adjacent hill. And, you know, just the, the desperate fighting, you know, throwing grenades and almost hand-to-hand combat that it came down to to, uh, to win the struggle in, in Italy was just amazing to, to consider. And uh, as we were saying before, very, very underreported at the time, there was a... Mm-hmm. I can't remember her name, but there was a there was a famous quote from a female member of parliament um, during the war, where she accused the soldiers in in Italy of being D Day dodgers, and <laughs> at, at time, that's amazing. It, it, absolutely, and yeah. um, I think only retros- I think it, it was out of ignorance it, mm-hmm. rather than knowledge, and right. I think it's only retrospectively that um, people have realised that's a you know. <laughs> A ridiculous thing to say, but at the time, that's that's how it was felt. That you know, the main effort was was um, Overlord and and D Day, and and the Italian campaign was a was a sort of sideshow. And again, I, my memory fails me, but I read a book a couple of years ago about an American unit that had served all the way through Africa, had come up through Italy. They were then landed in um, 
France with Operation Dragoon, the sort of second mm-hmm. land France. They then fought their way up through there and were involved in the liberation of one of the, the death camps. And I think were involved in an incident involving executing German guards. And it was, but it was told in the way that the, the, the amount of fighting this particular unit had been through, they were, by modern military standards, they were spent. They, they should have been right. given relief, but it just showed how in, at that stage, you just, you just fought till you won. There was no other alternative. Whether you were on Guadalcanal, Pililao, or Italy, you, you were there. And if you're wounded, you were taken away. If you weren't, on you went. And it's, it's a, it gives a pretty frightening picture for your average soldier and for people like, like Richard who were there as well. You know, there was, mm-hmm. there was just no let up. And it shows one aspect of the war I don't think gets enough credit in that uh, the soldiers who were doing the fighting wanted some recognition for what they were doing. And I'm sure the soldiers in Italy, both British and, and American, would have been outraged by that uh, MP's remark because they, they thought, you know, they were fighting what was you know, seen as perhaps a sideshow uh, by some uh, in the government and also in the uh, news media. And that's what I really respect uh, Tregascus's second book, Invasion Diary, which details his day-by-day uh, activity uh, on Sicily and also in Italy. And I really like it even better than Guadalcanal Diary, which, of course, his best-known book was a bestseller. came out at, 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 at just the right time, I think, for the American public, who were hungry for any kind of details about what was going on with American fighting men overseas. And he hit the market just in time for that. And that's what part of what made that book such a success. And I think Invasion Diary was overshadowed because it came out while people were anticipating the uh, invasion of the European continent, the D-Day operation, and had forgotten about all the fighting that was going on uh, still in in Italy. But I think his writing is uh, a little more polished and uh, a little better in Invasion Diary. And I think it's heightened by the conditions that he faced. And uh, also the fact that, you know, he kind of knew what it was like finally to be a wounded man like many of the uh, soldiers overseas experience in one way or another. Uh, either they themselves were wounded or they saw their friends and, and colleagues wounded in action and killed in action. And just his, his description of, of being wounded on that mountain, hit by the shell, and what he had to do to stagger down from the, from the mountainside to, to find someone to offer him uh, help and you know getting off that mountain is just some of, I think some of the the best writing he ever did uh, as a as a journalist. It's that that extraordinary description of his of almost sympathizing with the effect of his visible wounds on other people as well. Yeah. That that was yeah. a great right. bit of writing. And in many ways, the, the level of injury he had, if he'd been a regular soldier, probably would have taken him out of the war completely. Um, but to go back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the things that uh, fascinated me about his story and uh, really inspired me to write about him was I came across a column by Ernie Pyle who visited him in in the evacuation hospital in Italy. 
and was just astounded by his willingness to you know, to go back to the fighting because as Ernie said, you know, if, if I had a, a wound like he did, I would have gone home and rested on my laurels forever. But uh, Tregascus did not do that. He felt he owed it to the fighting men, as Ernie did when, you know, he could have stayed home after covering, uh, you know, the uh, liberation of, of, of Paris, but went back home uh, and took some time, but went on to the Pacific to report on the fighting there and, and lost his life in, in, while, while doing so. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Tregascus, you know, he did suffer from a little bit of PTSD because of his wounded, because he went, you know, went back after the breakout from the Normandy landings and followed the first army into uh, into Germany and covered the intense street fighting uh, with the taking of Aachen. And uh, really, every, you know, uh, that uh, the noise of that kind of, a of activity, you know, battling from house to house, uh, I think exasperated his feelings of, uh, uh, you know, what's gonna happen to me, you know, is this it? And uh, it was very shaky in his nerves in going back into action. And, and that was it again, you know, we must be thankful for his reporting because looking at the historical record, a sort of general understanding is there is a, almost a narrative about the, the whole um, D-Day Normandy invasion where you go from, they land, uh, there are terrible losses and then mm -hmm. fighting in, in Normandy. And then you have the Battle of the Belgian and then somehow after that, it all seems to, oh, it, and then the war finished, but actually between the Battle of the Bulge and the end of the war in Germany, there was some absolutely terrible fighting and, and Aachen absolutely typifies that. And I, I think it was probably the time in the war when clearly everyone had had enough in the, in the European theater, but fanatics on the German side were hanging on and that house to house fighting again, thanks to, to Trugaskis, people know about that because it was even now again it's that funny last three months of the European campaign that without people like Trugaskis writing about it in the direct sense we may not know that much about the actual experience. Indeed um, and he did a great piece of reporting for an article he did for the Saturday Evening Post about his experiences in Aachen um, with the men of, of the uh, first first division and it was aptly titled said from house to house and room to room and that's the kind of uh of action that was going on in that city uh you know blasting their way uh with tanks and uh, artillery and bazooka fire and uh, having to deal with uh civilians uh, as well german uh, civilians who might be crouching in, in a cellar, not knowing, you know, if you're throwing a grenade down there, you might be, instead of killing enemy soldiers, enemy uh, civilians. Uh, so it was uh, some in intense activity and not unlike what he experienced in the jungle on Guadalcanal, uh, because, you know, in fighting from house to house and room to room, you don't know what's going to be behind that next corner in the same way in the jungle where you can hardly see, you know, a few feet in, in front of you. You don't know what's going to be behind that next bush or a next tree. Uh, it might be an, an enemy soldier waiting to take your life. And uh, uh, Trigascus was very 
good at reporting about that kind of, uh, of fighting. Because, of course, it, it, that, that sort of, it's very much part of, of the sort of public consciousness now because of movies, because of mm -hmm. history channels and all sorts of media. But I guess at the time, for many people, both in the UK and in the US, there would just be no concept of that type of fighting. It wouldn't have been in the in the consciousness in terms of the literature or whatever. It was this was brand new knowledge that was being fed back to the public. Indeed, and that's really the first taste of, of that kind of uh, of action, and not something they had experienced uh, before in, in any other uh, of the wars that came before that World War One included. When you had the, the trench fighting, uh, you didn't really have that. Uh, fighting in a city, which is uh, quite different from the open uh, countryside. Uh, but uh, Tregascus, you know, went in with the soldiers and uh, shared meals with them as they uh, crouched uh, in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a shattered house, uh, kind of scrounged for, for food in, in the cupboards and then uh, shared the food that, that they found and, and got to know the men who, who did that uh, kind of fighting. This extraordinary work. And then after the Second War, of course, many people would have hung their boots up at that stage, but he, within a few years, he was in Korea. Um, he was in which, there, yeah, for a short period of time making a, a, a documentary film near the end of the war. Uh, he was kind of conflicted about uh, doing further war reporting in Korea. Uh, he had his uh, trying to get his diabetes under control with the uh, insulin regime. And uh, he had written some letters wondering, you know, should I go or, or shouldn't I? And he finally went at the end. But it really wasn't until Vietnam that he got back into action uh, on a, a more regular basis. And uh, of course, this was a different kind of war from the one that he had experienced in World War II where there were very defined battlefronts. And as some uh, French journalist told him, you know, here, you know, everywhere is, is the front. You could be at, attacked while you're in your hotel in, in Saigon enjoying a, a meal or uh, just traveling down the road trying to get from one engagement to the next. And it's something he hadn't experienced be before in his wartime re reporting. And, and very much changes the psychology of where you are because i guess second world war was very much clearing the land to put it bluntly and once the land was cleared if notwithstanding major right. counterattacks, you were behind lines and, and safe and clearly vietnam and of course by vietnam he was you know he, he wasn't as young and sprightly and you don't want to be cutting about the battlefield when you're a little bit older it's not easy you wouldn't think so, and yet he still went on operations with uh, American advisors, uh, went on uh, helicopter missions with them, uh, fighting with uh, with the with Arvin troops, and you know jumping off in, into rice paddies, following troops uh, into action. Uh, continued to do so at an age when uh, a lot of people would have uh, hung up their boots and uh, retired to to write their memoirs at that time. It's, but I guess it comes from this desire he had to to tell the soldiers stories to make sure that people understood what was happening and 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 
not necessarily why it was happening, but the, the, the experiences of people on the ground. Indeed. And uh, I think that's what drew him into conflict with some of the younger correspondents who were uh, covering uh, the fighting in South Vietnam in the early 1960s. Um, you know, he um, came into conflict with uh, reporters like David Halberstam of the New York Times, who I know was very uh, willing. Tregascus was a hero of his. He had read his books about World War II. And uh, Halberstam tells a story about, um, you know, going uh, out with uh, Tregascus and introducing him to some of his sources and, and going back with him uh, that evening. And uh, Tregas said, you know, if I was doing what you're doing, I, I would be ashamed of myself. And I think it's because Halberstam and the other young journalists were questioning whether America should be involved in this kind of conflict. And uh, Tregascus was not used to that kind of questioning of, uh, of the American government. Uh, and it's kind of understanding understandable because you know during his experiences in world war ii you know america was under direct danger from both you know nazi germany and the japanese and so he was used to uh, supporting uh, the american government and believing what it was saying and uh, believing that uh, reporters should report uh, and support the troops who were doing the actual fighting and it this kind of new new conflict, I think, uh, caused a little schism between uh, the reporters of the uh, generation that were uh, first going into action in South Vietnam and the older reporters like uh, Tregascus and Higgins uh, and others who went to uh, South Vietnam early on during our involvement there and uh, wanted to support uh, this fledgling democracy that that they felt South Vietnam was, but as a lot of the younger journalists learn, maybe you know it wasn't quite the uh, fledging democracy that it was uh, 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 supposed to be. And I think there was that graying of of which Dragascus would not have understood. There was a graying at the time of of uh, the, the who the, there were no good guys, no bad guys, and somehow that the the military is you know is is potentially a, a, not necessarily a force for good the whole time and. Whereas clearly in World War II, that was it was very much you know good guys versus bad guys, and even though there were lots of grey areas actually in that, the, the the philosophy of of trying to create this revisionist view of the world, which just wasn't there, it just had to be done. Um, I think That's I was right. I was reading recently that um, that also one of the things I think it was Victor. Victor Hansen was saying this, that um, the, the, both the United States and the UK and the Allies were both industrially, societally, in every way, 100% committed to winning the war. And the idea was that, you know, we've got to win this, and until we've won it, there's really nothing else to talk about. So let's just not worry about the economy, not worry about anything but, but winning. And and and, the, and there was this whole thing that you know we would only accept unconditional surrender. We know yeah. when the war was over because the other side would quit. Yes. Yeah. And I think. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. You go. No, right. Go ahead. Yeah. And and that that wasn't the case in in Vietnam. You know, we never knew. You know, when would 
when would the uh, war end? When, when would we achieve victory? You know, when would we have that light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, and there was early on in the war, I'm doing a book now on, on Malcolm Brown. It's my next project, mm -hmm. who was the AP bureau chief in Saigon in the early 1960s and took the famous photo of the Buddhist monk who um, immolated himself in yes. protest against Diem's uh, government. It was, uh, you know, sent around the world and became uh, one of the, I think, three uh, photographs you think of when you think of the Vietnam War, along with the, the young girl who's naked and uh, running yeah. down the yeah. road because of the napalm strike. Yeah. And then during the Tet Offensive, the photograph of the Saigon police officer shooting the suspected uh, uh, BC gorilla. Uh, in yeah. the head. So um, it's, I'm learning more and more about, um, you know, what was going on during those early days in, in the Vietnam War. What was it uh, that America wanted to accomplish? And it seemed like the Kennedy administration wanted to support uh, DM's government, but not really let, you know, anyone else in the world know about it. <laughs> they, they really wanted to keep it secret because uh, Kennedy seemed more willing to, you know, put it on the, uh, make it a secret war so that uh, he would deal with Vietnam in the second administration. He just wanted to put it on the back burner and not get too much attention to it until he was reelected in 1964. And so you had, an, uh, you know, government officials in Vietnam uh, with the embassy, uh, there'd be a aircraft carrier come into Saigon to unload helicopters and other equipment. And this reporters like Brown would go out and see this and they'd try to get comment from uh, American officials there. And they say, you know, what carrier? We don't see a carrier. So there was that kind of activity going on. I'm sure that would uh, kind of make uh, reporters who were trying to cover the conflict uh, a little cynical at times. And I think it's the, the problem was, of course, with with Vietnam and many of the other um, wars that took place post Second World War and certainly for the rest of the 20th century was that within the context of the Cold War, there was so much else going on. It was the clarity of the Second World War in terms of who's on whose side just wasn't there. And, and that is why I think in many people's eyes it could be manipulated and re-reported and, and turned into no one's good, no one's bad. There wasn't that kind of clarity, I think. Right. And when uh, Tregascus went to Vietnam and, you know, when he was doing his reporting for his book, Vietnam Diary, uh, there weren't a great number of uh, American soldiers there at the time. There were, you know, advisors were in the thousands. This is before uh, the great escalation of the war under the Johnson administration. So uh, he had the ability as a famous reporter uh, to go out and, uh, you know, meet the American advisors, go in, into action with them. And um, as he did uh, in World War II, uh, got to know them, became friends with them, and uh, uh, wanted to report on what he saw as their successes in, uh, you know, turning the war around for South Vietnam, for the South Vietnamese and, and the Arvin army. And that was an interesting stage in the war because it was very much um, 
certainly the the belief was that it was it was very winnable and actually militarily exactly. mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. This is a strange. Yeah. The post the post sixty eight early seventies world was was in many ways, in my view, this is just my view, but right. in many ways it was a sort of political withdrawal, not a military one. The, 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 I think it was McNamara that sort of identified that actually militarily, the United, the United States was inc- and Australia was incredibly successful um, nearly all the time. Mm-hmm. This is the strange thing that no one realizes. It's it's the politics that sunk Vietnam, not not that in terms of a victory. It wasn't the military. Right. the The psychological battle was one that that they were losing, not not the battle on on the in the actual field. Uh, on many uh, occasions, uh, the American military was successful on a, a lot of occasions, but uh, winning, uh, as I said, the hearts and minds was was something else. And of course. Most recently, we've kind of seen a similar situation again in in Afghanistan. I, I, I wondered, reading Dragaskis, what he would have made of of Afghanistan. I'm sure he would have um, been a fascinated to go there to, to see the place, but also he would have no doubt related to U.S. Marines in, in Helmand mm-hmm. in 2015 as much as he would have U.S. Marines in Guadalcanal in 1942. Yeah, you wonder if he would have, instead of just reporting on what he saw in front of him, uh, if from that experience he would have looked, get, given a broader look at, you know, why were we here in the first place? You know, that's something he didn't have to face in World War II. He, people knew why we were there. We were attacked and uh, we were in it uh, t- till the end uh, until we uh, achieved victory. Um, but perhaps um, it's always difficult to say what would have happened with <laughs> with someone. Uh, but uh, yeah, maybe he would have taken a broader look at at why we were there and should we be there in the first place. It's one of those situations where, um, I, 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 I'm sure history will show that the there are sort of parallels of Vietnam in terms of mission creep and. Mm-hmm. everything that goes with that but yes the, the the clarity of world war ii in that regard is i think one of the reasons why in terms of military history people are so drawn to it the the, the way it was run i mean it's it's extraordinary to think because it's now a very long time ago we were often now we're talking about people who have a memory of the second world war in terms of a living memory most people sadly who served are, are no longer with us but right. um it's it's amazing to think one of the things that fascinates me about the, the USA in particular is just the, in terms of mobilization and success, uh, it's actually a very short space of time um, in terms of industrial mobilization, um, taking a military that was really very relatively small compared to uh, the US military of, of today even, um, and building that up into an incredible fighting force in, in really months not not years even it was it was it's that side of things is a remarkable achievement as well and and then you have people like dragaskis who are uh, are kind of reporting on that um and just the, the yeah the, the the sheer ability to to morph and and change is is actually an extraordinary story in itself it is and it's amazing how much action uh, he saw in a very short period of time you know, he sent out 
uh, to cover the war in the Pacific by the International uh, News Service uh, in, um, I think, March 1942. And by that, you know, just a month after being in, in Hawaii, he's he's on the task force that launches the Doolittle Raiders that uh, bombed uh, Tokyo. And then he's on the aircraft carrier Hornet for uh, the early, for the Battle of the Coral Sea and really engaged in the, in the Battle of Midway, goes from there to uh, Guadalcanal, uh, stays uh, for seven weeks, the first seven weeks of fighting there. There's crucial uh, part of the campaign to capture Guadalcanal, and returns home and then is on to Europe in, in Sicily uh, and, and Italy. And one of the aspects that fascinated me from his early reporting is the fact that um, reporters during World War II kind of were self-censorship. They, they knew what they could and could not write about, but uh, dealing with uh, the various censors, you know, coming back from Guadalcanal, uh, trying to write his, his book on uh, Guadalcanal Diary and having to give what he, he wrote for the day to a Navy censor who would cut and paste and he would they kept his notebooks in a safe overnight because they had material that they didn't want to, to leak out. And the fact that he had these great descriptions of the uh, Doolittle ra Raiders, you know, watching from the deck of the carrier Northampton and seeing uh, the B-25s launch uh, from, the, from the Hornet on their way to uh, bomb Tokyo and the rough seas and everything and all that great detail about that mission you know did not appear right away the american public didn't know anything hardly anything uh, about the uh, Doolittle raid because it was kept very uh, tight reins on the details and his uh, dispatches about that raid did not appear until a year later and by that time he was famous for guadalcanal diary and so um you know it was uh, distributed in uh, newspapers around the country uh, as the, uh, his Doolittle diary to take advantage of the fame he won for Guadalcanal diary. But it took a year for some of his uh, dispatches to appear. And it was difficult for a lot of the correspondents to get their work back to the United States because they had to deal with uh, lags in, in communication, sometimes uh, material they tried to mail back or cable back uh, was lost and never got to their home offices. And so just the tiny details of doing work as a, a journalist day by day uh, in combat situations uh, was uh, very difficult to endure. And I'm amazed that uh, these uh, men and women got anything ever into print. We, we just forget that the communication in those days was was really burgeoning in terms of the ability to get things back in any timely way. Um, I suppose the advantage that gave them was that by the time they, their stories got back to um, newspapers, etc., that the, the war would have moved on to the extent that maybe they wouldn't be risking the security of personnel and what have you, right. whereas nowadays it's, it's back before anyone can actually find out what's happened. Um, yeah, and it's, ama it's amazing doing uh, archival research in, in his papers at the University of, of Wyoming. I came across these long dispatches uh, that he um, sent back to the Saturday Evening Post 
at the end of the war. He was uh, overseas in the Pacific. He had just followed uh, this B-29 bomber crew, you know, going with them from uh, the United States, flying with them uh, into the Pacific, going with them on bombing missions over Japan. And these stories were published in the Saturday Evening Post in, in, in the regular series called The Road to Tokyo. And from there, he went uh, to the uh, carrier U.S. Ticonderoga and was involved in uh, bombing uh, missions against the Japanese home islands, uh, some Japanese naval bases, and actually flew off the carrier uh, on a bombing raid. And it was just great reporting about what he saw while he was on this small Avenger aircraft doing these bombing missions against a Japanese ship in this harbor. And his uh, interactions uh, with the young pilot uh, who flew on that mission and another young crew member on that plane. And uh, at great, great reporting about this mission. And then going back and uh, staying on the carrier. And then the next day or two, that same pilot he'd flown with uh, went on another mission, something happened and his plane crashed into the sea. And just the reaction from him about experiencing that loss. But all yeah. these dispatches were never covered because it came near the end of the war and the news of the atomic bomb bombing of Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki just took precedence over everything. So all these dispatches, all this great work he had done and was very proud of, never saw the light of day. And I think that's something that happened to a lot of correspondents during World War II as well. Maybe some of their greatest work uh, was uh, never read by anyone anywhere. That's a, that's a terrible shame. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. and uh, I guess the problem is that, that certainly in the post-war era, because clearly now there's a huge market for reading uh, any original material from the Second World War. I guess that but in the post-war era, it would, people very rapidly didn't want to read about the war. And so the, the publishers wouldn't have necessarily wanted to pick it up and just publish it as a, as a, a series of memoirs, et cetera. And yeah, there maybe, seemed to be a, yeah, a glut of, uh, you know, war memoirs, perhaps, that uh, publishers were, were looking elsewhere, uh, thought that people might have been tired of the war. Uh, but Trigascus, you really, really couldn't let go uh, after the war ended. You know, he followed um, the military government officials from uh, the Philippines into Japan and reported for the Saturday Evening Post about the establishment, uh, you know, what was going on uh, early days of the American occupation uh, in Japan. And we see he was always concerned with, you know, what happened to these veterans after they returned home. And I think some of his uh, uh, best writing also appeared in the Saturday Evening Post after the war, where he followed veterans and seeing how they were, um, you know, reacting to being civilians once again. Uh, various members of, of the military, to be the uh, bomb, former bomber pilots, uh, former infantrymen, uh, fighter pilots, and seeing how they were. Know, transitioning to civilian life and what they would be doing uh, with their careers having survived the war. So it's always interested in, you know, what happened to these men? How did the war affect them? And, and what were they doing now? 
and that's again would have been a new concept in in uh, mm -hmm. in the post-war society. I know that uh, you know historically. I mean, it was known that that soldiers after the American Civil War struggled to reintegrate, right. suffered from many of the same problems that soldiers always mm -hmm. do. But actually, in the modern era, they, it was. Although I think the U.S. military were aware of the, the effect of being away from home for long periods of time and the stresses and strains of war, they, 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 there wasn't really any data on it. And yes, Strugaskis, because he could relate to it directly, he must have been a perfect person to record that. He was. And uh, some of these uh, men, you know, were doing well. Uh, but if you read the articles in the Post that he did uh, uh, upon their return, Little details creep in that show that, you know, the war did have an effect on them. You know, they sometimes it's a, a wife saying something about how, um, you know, her husband is having trouble sleeping at night or someone comes back and is having trouble uh, reintegrating in society as, you know, running around drinking too much and uh, hasn't really settled uh, on, on, a, on a career for himself. So little details crop up to give you, I think, a, a clearer picture of some of the effects that the war had on these men. And um, they might not talk to um, you know, their own family members about what they'd experienced. They'd, they'd rather keep it to themselves. And, but uh, this tension would build up. And uh, uh, in his work, uh, Tregascus tried to show that, I think, to the American public. It's that that dilemma of for people of of if you tell them everything, does that change the whole dynamic of the family, or do you right. speak to someone like Dragaskis who understands, and you kind of you, you dilute it in a sense. Um, it's a mm -hmm. yeah, it's a it's yeah. a, the data on that again. I I, I think it's fascinating that that um, that someone like Dragaskis could sort of identify that, and and so, but I guess having been through that been through the war himself maybe he was it was mirroring how he was feeling too i suspect it was i think it was you know he had the same kind of uh, trauma that these men had experienced during the war from from what he saw uh the bloody horrors that he saw in combat and that's something that uh it's hard to forget and i don't think he ever did uh really forget it's. I think that 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 side of things that he, that, the, the way he captures that, is I can see exactly why that's drawn you to to write this book because there there is something very very special about the the way he writes and I think as we were saying at the beginning of the podcast there is this there are many war reporters who kind of are slightly grand and are sort of making some grand point and I I think the only grand points that I can see that Dragaskis makes are about ordinary people rather than the really, really big picture. And I think that's, that, that makes his writing very, very special, I think. And he had this unique quality of connecting with people who were just fascinating to, to read about, like on Guadalcanal, um, uh, connecting with uh, Colonel Edson and his Raider battalion. And uh, on Sicily, uh, being with the, the British Eighth Army, and he's there at the end for this uh, last-ditch amphibious operation to, f from the British trying to get into Messina before Patton's men do, and he's with this um, 
mad British commando, uh, Jack uh, Churchill, in this race, uh, in this, uh, in this uh, Jeep to get into Messina before the Americans do. And just um, if they had been just a few hours earlier, they might all have been killed by the retreating Germans who are trying to, you know, to get from Sicily to uh, Italy. But he had this knack for finding men who were willing to go into battle and uh, really were almost daredevils in, in doing so. It's that is the knack. And mm-hmm. it, it, it is often very hard to to get in with these people because they're just at a level of intensity, which they just what they don't need is a reporter. They just need someone who can take care of themselves, which, again, is, I think, this this quality that Dragatikis has when you read, as you said, about him taking care of himself with a very severe wound. That's the kind of that's the kind of chutzpah and the strength that 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 would have endeared him to anybody in the military field, whether it be land, sea, or air. Yeah, and then, and then talking about that uh, experience with Churchill, I remember that uh, uh, Churchill had warned him, you know, don't wear your American helmet with us because uh, our troops might mis- mistake it for a German helmet because the German helmets and the American helmets were almost similar, and it's hard to tell one from the other in, in the dark, perhaps. And so he had to go and scrounge up a British helmet. And the only one he could find was from uh, this burned out uh, anti-tank gun unit. I think it was a a priest gun and um, had been destroyed by German fire and uh, a blackened helmet, you know, lay nearby. That's the one he had to pick up, but he did it because he had to do it. And that's uh, some of the activity and some of the uh, 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 details that uh, really make a story exciting to uh, to read. Uh, after it's over they do indeed now ray i was just going to say we're coming up to the hour and what anchor does in its wisdom is it cuts out after an hour so i'll have to send you a new link if that's okay because we're we're on a bit of a roll if that's okay with you i i I think that certainly the sicily um campaign and 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 italy uh as we said is and and Patton's involvement in that too which is where Patton really began to show his how, how difficult he could be in relation to perhaps allied relations <laughs> and mm-hmm. everything, as you say, the race for, um, he was, well, he was always competitive as, as a general, but uh, yes, to, to, um, to be an American reporter with on the British side of things, because there was no love lost at that stage, I suspect between Patton and, and, uh, and Churchill in that regard. <laughs> No, and it's great with uh, with uh, Trigasca is the fact that he could switch from the American to the British Army and seem to do it almost seamlessly and really ingratiate himself uh, with uh, troops from from both nations. Yeah, and uh, had some great reporting and the details about the uh, the British Tommies in his book Invasion Diary and uh, you know talking with them, sharing meals, uh, sleeping with them. Uh, behind the front and uh, this one thing he said he asked them what they thought of americans as people and one of the voices in the dark and typical chop sing song english answered they have more money than our chaps and take the girls about yet he added the americans (laughs) have have plenty of guts so it was uh, you get some great details about what it meant to fight a war with allies (laughs) well and and that's that kind of information is for as a, I guess for you as a historian is just absolutely invaluable because it would have 
those sort of snippets would have been lost without someone like Tregaskis recording them. Yeah, and that's what you get from uh, this kind of diary format that he settled upon. Um, you don't get the, the sweeping view of the war. You don't know really what's, you might not know what's going on over the next hill, but at least you know what's going on with the men that he's attached himself to. And you get the, the uh, just a very detailed view of the war, what, uh, how they talked, uh, what they ate, uh, how they, you know, took cover uh, under fire, um, the, just the great chances they took uh, in combat. And, and the fact that all of them were civilians really only months beforehand. I mean, the, the, many of the men in Aachen that he was with yeah. would have been civilians even relatively late into the war. Um, many of them would have been replacements. Uh, it, it, all of that side of things. Right. They're not professional soldiers. This is something that, that hasn't been uh, their career. And you see the progression of... Uh, going from civilian life to the to the rigors of, of being a soldier at the front lines and how the men themselves change. And it's it is that is one of the remarkable things about World War II in terms of the, the sheer numbers of civilians that were turned into fighting men and women. Again, it's a, an extraordinary achievement, both from, you know, all the allied countries and particularly the U.S. in terms of huge volumes. I think by the end of the Second War, I think, did the U.S. Something, have something like 16 million citizens under some form of military? Um, One way or, or the other. That's, I think that's correct, yes. Which is yeah. just a, a country's worth of people. <laughs> and and yeah, just, to, just to capture that, I think is a, is really what Tregaskis is is mm -hmm. one of his major achievements is about and of, um, amongst many. Um, and and for you, when when you were doing the research, um, you said you 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 found all sorts of of interesting um, aspects of his writing that that were very, that weren't published at the time. Um, is that something you want to pursue in terms of maybe producing a, a, a compendium of his unpublished writing or? Are you happy to move on to other projects? Well, I've unfortunately moved on to another project now, but that now that you bring it up, that's a great idea because there's a there's plenty uh, of his work that uh, has not been published and perhaps should be. And uh, one of the great aspects of doing the research was coming across this unpublished uh, memoir he had started. Uh, about his experience in the war, which was a great help to me. Uh, I had that to draw upon as well as his, his books about the war, Guadalcanal Diary and Invasion Diary. Uh, but he had covered a lot of aspects of his experiences early on in the war that I had not known about, you know, dealing with uh, military authorities in, in Hawaii, the blackout early on in the war. and. Uh, getting arrested for having his window. Uh, he didn't know at the time, but he had violated the blackout rules and going to court and seeing all the other people who were uh, charged as well for violating some some of the arcane uh, military rules at the time, uh, going out and 
visiting various shops and going to drinking at the bar and uh, his experiences in, in that and going in, uh, you know, sailing on, on a ship into combat and his experiences with the various crew members and the differences between being on a cruiser as compared to being on an aircraft carrier and all these fascinating details that I, that I didn't know about his, his time in the war uh, that are just lying in the archive somewhere. So I was great for me to be able to bring that uh, to today's readers, to a, a new generation who but, might not know the gritty details of what it meant to you know, go into combat and, and report on what was going on in the war. And I, I, I love the little observations you found about, about for example, on um, the, the guy on the carrier who had the appendectomy. Mm-hmm. And I think it was an officer who witnessed it who said he, he couldn't stand the smell of chloroform and had to... Right. And, and, and there was no chloroform being used. Yeah, he just couldn't take it. And, you know, just the attitude of, of men in action, as he reported about, um, you know, he had become great friends on the Hornet with uh, a gentleman named Waldron, who was the uh, uh, commander of a torpedo squadron uh, from the Hornet that was Torpedo Squadron 8 that was wiped out uh, by the Japanese in this uh, really ill-fated attempt, uh, uh, torpedo attack. Uh, on the Japanese fleet and only one member of that squadron, George Gay, who we shot down and he was the only survivor. And then what, what happened after all these guys, you know, don't come back to the carrier, you know, what do the crew members say? Well, you know, they don't even hardly mention it at all. Um, they, they move on, which was uh, one way of, of dealing with losing your friends in combat. And as a, uh, Trigascus mentions uh, maybe that was the best way to to deal with it, but it's something that he never forgot. Yeah, it's one of the things that I was interested that that um, and I, I don't know why why he wouldn't have done this anyway, but was the fact that on Guadalcanal he he armed himself with a with a 1911 Colt, mm-hmm. and I was going to ask you presumably in terms of. I guess it wouldn't really matter on Guadalcanal, to be honest. But in in terms of engaging with the enemy, clearly as a journalist, I guess he could do what he liked. I mean, in, in legal terms, I'm just wondering. Legally, legal- yeah, under under War Department regulations and uh, aspects of of the Geneva Convention, you know, uh, correspondents are not supposed to be armed. But um, that was not the first time I came across uh, that fact. Of course. Um, Stephen, I think it's Stephen Casey. Uh, he had done these two massive volumes about um, war correspondents, one based in one on Europe, and a new one just came out on the uh, Pacific. And he was talking about the uh, journalists, including Walter Cronkite, who were uh, going on uh, some of the early bombing raids against Germany from the, the B 17 crews from the 8th Air Force. And how they were, you know, had to be trained and to go along and know how to, you know, uh, what to do in an emergency if they had to parachute out, what to do with that. But they were trained to fire machine guns in case uh, crew members were maybe put out of action, which is something I hadn't known before. And I was surprised in coming across uh, uh, Trigascus's reporting, which was not in Guadalcanal Diary, was not published at the time, but that he and Bob Miller who were two of the uh, 
the correspondents who were with the Marines early on in the campaign did pack those uh, 45 caliber uh, pistols with them uh, because, as, as he said, you know, Japanese snipers did not know that they were non-combatants <laughs> and they wanted to be safe and they had to, to take chances like uh, regular members uh, of the military. And an intriguing aspect, you know, when he was, when he left Guadalcanal, uh, he, of course, he had to go on a B-17 that he visited. And uh, on the way uh, back behind the lines, you know, they had to do a, a mission against a Japanese base. And he actually manned one of the machine guns and fired at a Japanese plane uh, while he was going back uh, to uh, to write his book about Guadalcanal Diary. And it's um, an aspect of a life of a correspondent war in, during World War II that I uh, was surprised to find. I know they, they weren't supposed to, but of course, uh, the war in the Pacific was a little bit different from the war in Europe. It was uh, a more no-holds-barred war kind of war. Uh, no mercy was given uh, on either side on many occasions. And so, um, of course, I had heard details about, uh, you know, the wild exploits of Ernest Hemingway uh, when he was a war reporter and, uh, you know, engaging uh, with uh, French partisans and, you know, arming himself. And that was kind of looked down upon by the other correspondents who were covering the war in Europe at that time. But it's a fascinating aspect of the war that I had not known much about. I suppose, I mean, you know, it's, I guess it comes down to the right to self-defense, doesn't it? I, I guess if you're not mm -hmm. offensive and you're defending yourself, then probably on fairly strong legal ground. I don't know. <laughs> but it's fascinating. Yeah. You're right. It's, it's um, but but. But I guess on Guadalcanal in particular, what, why wouldn't you? Because, as you say, right. the, 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 there was no quarter given, and that became apparent very rapidly to the U.S. Marines on the in the island hopping campaign, that, and and right. to the U.S. Army too. That there was just no way that that there was there was going to be any reason in this, mm -hmm. which is one of the things that made it hell on earth. Um, you know, at, at least with the. Most elements of the German military, there was an there was an understanding that you know there were rules mm -hmm. of war, notwithstanding a few SS units in the right. stages of, of right. Malbadi, etc. But but uh, yeah, the, the 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 that's the thing about the island campaign that is the, the island hopping campaign that is mm -hmm. just utterly terrifying. I think is that it it's you know there was there was a, <laughs> there was it was just hell on earth. And there was no way around it. And those those Marines that that did multiple islands, I just think, wow, the the, mm -hmm. the strength to do that, extraordinary, really extraordinary. Yeah, and the correspondents knew they were they were in danger uh, on Guadalcanal. Uh, Tregascus and the other correspondents who eventually joined him there always wondered. You know, uh, there were always rumors about uh, imminent Japanese landing uh, to. Uh, you know, finally, you know, just overwhelmed the, the Marines who were on the island. And uh, they were always worried about, you know, what would happen to them. And uh, later on in the war, uh, when I was doing my book on Robert Sherrod, you know, he was on Tarawa uh, during those uh, fateful 76 hours. And yes. that first, uh, after the, the first night after the uh, initial landing, he was digging in with a fellow journalist and you know, wondering himself, is this going to be my, my last 
night on Earth because he fully expected a, a Japanese uh, bonsai charge that would uh, try to sweep the Americans back into the sea and was delighted the next morning to be uh, alive and, and functioning uh, to go into battle once again. So um, the thin line between, you know, living or dying was something that these journalists thought about often when they were, you know, risking the, their lives on the front lines during the war. Yeah, and there's just absolutely nowhere to go on those islands. Taro is where they hit the coral reef. Is that the island where that was? that's caused the massive yes. when they well, in? you think so. They uh, The first waves of the Marines were in uh, tracked uh, alligator uh, amphibious tractors. And so uh, they weren't held up as much as the subsequent waves were uh, by uh, the coral reef. Um, so they, the first um, waves landed pretty well, but uh, it was just vicious fire from the Japanese who were well entrenched in, in defensive uh, positions. And, and um, Sherrod was surprised. He didn't expect it because he, you know, offshore on the transport ship, he was told by, you know, Marine officers that he knew and, and naval officers that, you know, we're going to obliterate uh, the Japanese with just our, our naval fire. But uh, uh, that's something he heard on subsequent landings as well. And it never quite worked out uh, as well as they had expected. And so uh, the landings were opposed by uh, fierce fire from the Japanese on Tarawa and then subsequently on uh, other Pacific islands as well. Yes, all of the islands were just, you know, each and every one of them in a different way was, was just a hard slog the whole way. It was, which is, which is why, of course, um, the great fear was that the landing on the main island of Japan was going to be a nightmare, which would take at least till 1948 to to resolve. So, when that debate happens about the use of atomic weapons, it's that. The data on what had, what the experience had been, both whether it be Burma or the island hopping right. or wherever, it, it's not always factored in by people who just view it as a as a sort of isolated act. But yeah, that's right. And and the journalists knew that uh, um, that they were facing fearful odds from time to time on, on Iwo Jima in particular. I know that uh, Sherrod was on this landing craft, and a fellow reporter, Keith Wheeler, came back after being. Uh, on Iwo Jima for a short time and said, you know, if I was you, I wouldn't go in. Uh, it's just too much kind of, of hell to deal with on, on those beaches there. And uh, Sherrod thought to himself, you know, you've taken a lot of chances by now uh, in the Pacific. And, but he looked at uh, the Marines that were on this landing craft and he saw the same fear in their faces, realized, you know, they had to go. They couldn't decide to go back and uh, for a safe billet on a transport and he decided he'd have to go in and he owed it uh, to the men uh, he, on that uh, landing craft to go in and, and suffer the same way that uh, they suffered on those beaches. So yeah. it always inspires me, the, the bravery of these correspondents uh, who faced um, uh, sometimes overwhelming uh, fire from, from the enemy as well as the troops did. When, when they absolutely had an out, you know, and no one would have said anything. Yeah. This wasn't, you know, there, there wouldn't have been direct disobedience or any military punishment. Right. They would have, they could have just sat it out, and that would have been it. Yeah, yeah. They they could have gone home, and you know, Pyle could have stayed home uh, after 
his uh, experiences in Sicily, Italy, and North Africa, and also in, in France and the D-Day operation and liberation of Paris. Uh, Tregassus could have stayed home after his severe wounding uh, in uh, Italy. You know, he had to learn how his uh, to speak, speak and, and write all over again uh, because of his, his brain injury. And it was a long, tedious process and uh, even had to have a, a metal plate put in his head. And he kept his humor, even at that time, ask, joking with his doctors and asking if it was bulletproof. Unfortunately, it was not. Uh, as he doctors told him but you know he could have stayed home and rested on his laurels he'd uh, become famous uh, from his book Guadalcanal Diary uh, Invasion Diary also received good reviews but uh, he went back to the war you know and at the end um, when he was going uh, with the asked by his editors to follow the B-29 crew on that uh, the bombing mission back in in uh, the Pacific you know, they asked him, you know, do you really want to go? And he said, well, I really don't want to, but I think I have to. And so he did. You know, he went back. It's just the commitment. Was, it's just extraordinary. Extraordinary. So the book is out. Am I right in saying on the 15th of this month? November 15th, uh, officially from the uh, uh, University of uh, New Mexico uh, Press. It's a new imprint from them, High Roads Books. Uh, so it's available in, in all the usual places. And uh, I hope uh, people take a chance and um, look at a remarkable life. Uh, I focus mainly on his uh, career in World War II, um, but uh, you get a lot of details about his early life growing up, uh, beating out John Kennedy for a place on the Harvard swim team when he was at Harvard, uh, at Harvard and uh, his subsequent uh, uh, life after World War II, going to Vietnam, and uh, you know, writing for, for the movies and TV after after the end of World War II, um, and just a uh, remarkable life as a, a writer and as a journalist. Absolutely, and the title is Richard Tregaskis reporting under fire from Guadalcanal to Vietnam. And as you say, it's available on all the, the usual outlets. I hope Amazon as well. I know <laughs> Amazon seems to be the way that everyone buys books these days. Um, it is. It's up there. Great stuff. Well, look, Ray. As I, I just, I could chat. We we could chat for hours more. I really could. But I'm aware I've had more than uh, than I was allotted of your time of an hour. So I, I feel very privileged for that as well, Ray. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a and, great conversation, Will. I I thank you for having me on. Well, not at all. And and we must do this again. I would love to talk to you again about your other work and and future work too so we, we must stay in touch but ray You'll just so. thank you so very much for your time today and also congratulations on on the wonderful book i think it's a it's a wonderful book and you i have to say before we go you, you write so beautifully as well it's 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 a, a lovely writing style you have it's it's great to read and and uh, you know a proper page turner i, I really that's what that's what i aspire to so i'm glad happy to hear that i thank you very much not at all ray well look have a good day and we will speak very soon thank you so much for your time thank you sounds good thank you well bye-bye thank you ray cheers bye-bye